You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 13th of December 2022 on Monocle 24. The world's cryptocurrency investors grow abruptly less smug. Does Europe, having dug deep for Ukrainian refugees, have to dig deeper? And do we agree with Kenya's president about what we should be teaching 21st century school kids? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Lizette Raymer and Chris Lord will discuss all the day's big stories. Plus, we will be learning more about pigeon racing, which is frankly overdue. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I am joined today by Monocle's US editor Chris Lord and by Lizette Raymer, Europe correspondent for News Hub New Zealand. Hello to you both. Hello. Um, You you have both travelled vast distances to be here. I mean, not specifically to be here doing this show. That would be weird. Though, though, though flattering. Um, but uh, I will start with the one who has travelled the slightly vast, actually the considerably vaster different distance. Um, Lizette, you have recently been back home. I have. 35 hours. Yep. That's how long it took. Each way. <laughs> Each way. So it's a once a two year trip, I think. Yeah, you, you, you're among <laughs> the very few people whom an Australian cannot plead for sympathy. Um, I've about, got nothing about, for you, yeah, because about, we uh, get to Aussie and we keep going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I must seem like a total lightweight to you moaning about the fact that it takes 25 hours on planes to see my family. Week. How, how, how sick of the films did you get? I just gave up on them, to be honest. Yeah, <laughs> I resorted to just chatting to randoms and making strange friendships up with the air hostess who was bringing me red wine. Did you, did you reach that brilliant trance-like state where time stops having any meaning whatsoever and you do that thing where you decide, I think I'll just stare out the window for a bit. So you stare out the window for a bit and then look at your watch and it's four hours later. I was in the middle, so I had no, no window. No. But I had a stunning view of the bathroom, which everyone was constantly using, and that was how I was judging time. I was like, I've seen that man before. 35 hours hour. in a middle seat. That's it. Oh my God. Uh, Chris, can you compete? Well, you can't compete with that in terms of time spent in the air, though Los Angeles is a, a reasonable stretch. It's a considerable amount, but 35 hours in the middle seat. I mean, I, 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 I literally can't compete with that, Andrew. But I, I've been here, I've been back in the UK now for three days and I'm just starting to stop waking up at four o'clock in the morning, <laughs> pinging wide awake. So it's just today I actually feel slightly human again. So, yeah. Well, that, that'll be helpful over the next 40 minutes or so, but we will be starting with today's announcement from the National Ignition Facility at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in the United States. Boffins labouring therein claim to have made a major breakthrough in the quest to recreate nuclear fusion, the process which powers stars and which, if tamed here on Earth, could theoretically provide more or less limitless clean energy. Well, for more on this, I'm joined by our science correspondent, Chris Smith. Um, Chris, in terms of what they have announced today. How big a deal is it? It's a step forward. All these things are step forward, Andrew, but they're important step forward. The reason fusion is so attractive to us as an energy source is, A, we know it works. The reason we know it works is that we have the best evidence that it does work and works sustainably for a long period of time, staring at us every day, sure as the sun rises, because that's what I'm referring to. It's the, it's the process that runs the sun. 
We also know the physics works here, down here on Earth. Although people are saying this is the first time we've done fusion and we've got more energy out than we put in. Not strictly true. The hydrogen bomb is a fusion bomb. You just use nuclear fission, splitting atoms, to create enough of a thump to make the fusion reaction happen. So we know that we can do this. But what we haven't quite mastered yet is how we do this in a sustained way so people are trying to work out a how to initiate reactions and also how to maintain reactions and those are two slightly different problems that people are coming at from two slightly different angles the people who are working in the states the the announcement today and uh, leaked yesterday was the use of the lawrence livermore national ignition facility laser to basically give this thing such a thump that it squeezes uh, particles together hard enough to make them fuse and make new things and because the things they're making are slightly less massive than the things you squeeze together in the first place the missing mass is the energy that comes out and they're saying they got about 20% more energy out than they put in to get the reaction going. Is it possible to explain the mechanics of the process to somebody who failed fifth form physics? I'll have a go. Um, the, the bottom line, as I said, is that fusion works, and we know it works because it powers the sun. What is the sun doing? The sun is taking atoms of the light element hydrogen. In fact, it takes four atoms of hydrogen, and it squeezes them together very hard to make one atom of helium. And because one atom of helium weighs less than the combined mass of four atoms of hydrogen, there's a difference in mass. So you then ask the question, well, if I've taken four things, squeeze them into one thing, and it weighs less than the four things did, the, the missing mass must have gone somewhere. Well, as Einstein told us, E, energy, equals M, mass, times the speed of light squared. So energy and mass are interchangeable. So if you have some mass missing, that's the energy that's come out of the reaction. Now, down here on Earth, we don't have a convenient star with the gravity of the sun, the core of which you could have 30 or 40 planet Earths just stretching across the core of the sun. We, we haven't got that level of gravity, nor have we got a million degrees or so to play within the centre of that high gravitational field. So we have to create those sorts of conditions here on Earth, but we do it by cheating a little bit, by using reactions that are slightly easier to do than just squeezing hydrogen together. So what they're doing in these various reactions is to take heavy water, um, well, the deuterium, which is a heavier form of hydrogen from water, and tritium, another form of heavy hydrogen, a heavier form of hydrogen. These are easier to push together and fuse than just hydrogen atoms. And so they're squeezing the deuterium and the tritium together and from that you get this magic atom of helium and a stray neutron that comes off some missing mass which is the energy that comes out and Bob's your uncle that's the, that's the goal at the end of the day but again the problem is not necessarily getting it going in the first place it's getting it to work sustainably and that's the nut they're still trying to crack well that prompts my concluding question I guess that you describe this as a, a step forward is it possible to briefly sum up what workable scalable nuclear fusion would actually mean and and how far away it might be well at the moment nuclear energy fission energy which we're using here on earth is regarded as an attractive way to combat our climate emissions problem because once you've built the facility and it then operates for decades it operates in a relatively zero emission game so nuclear is a very good way to cut your carbon footprint well fusion would be even better because the fuels that we use don't have long-lived, nasty, polluting, radioactive 
consequences. They produce, yes, they produce some radioactivity, but nothing like on the scale of fission. They're also more compact. They need less concrete to make a fusion facility, and they need less energy to run a fusion facility. And the raw materials, the tritium and the deuterium, are very abundant here on Earth already. So we would have really a solution to our immediate energy problem with a low carbon footprint attached to it, very low carbon footprint attached to it. So the, the enticement is there, but it is a big nut to crack this. Getting, getting to a way of simulating the physics that runs a sun, a star, on Earth and do it in a sustainable way. Now that's a tough ask and that's why scientists have laboured over this for decades but they are getting close and we've got projects in Europe at ITER, the International Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor also the, these are National Ignition Facility experiments being done in California both of which are pushing the boundaries and getting close to the, to the zero sum game point where the energy out equals energy in and now they're getting to the point where they're beginning as this week's announcement suggests to get more out than they put in, which is a big step forward. Chris Smith, thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Daily on Monocle 24. And we will stay in the United States now and the apprehension of Sam Bankman-Fried, very much former CEO of collapsed cryptocurrency exchange FTX. Bankman-Fried is now on the hook for charges of plotting to defraud investors, leading a few flint-hearted sceptics to wonder if the whole cryptocurrency thing is essentially a 21st century tulip mania. Although in fairness to the frantic flower purchasers of the 17th century Dutch Republic, at least they ended up with tulips. Bankman Fried is thus far pleading ineptitude rather than malice, claiming I didn't knowingly commit fraud. I was certainly not nearly as competent as I thought I was. Um, first of all, does anybody here on the panel want to admit to at any point having dabbled in crypto? Definitely not. Definitely not. Lizette? No, I wouldn't even know where to start. (laughs) (laughs) Well, with this expertise gathered at this table, I'm sure the next few minutes of discussion are going to be enlightening for everybody. Um, Why have you not, I'll ask you first, Chris, dabbled in crypto? I haven't because I understand this about as well as I understood fifth form physics. So the... The science of crypto is Mm. almost as foreign to me as what Chris was just talking about with nuclear Mm. fusion. However... We're we're learning a lot about why we all became journalists here, aren't we? (laughs) (laughs) But what I would, you know, this whole science behind it of data mining and how that becomes monetized and ultimately you're kind of trading in this uh, slightly abstract process of extracting data and Mm. multiplications and so on that someone ultimately down the line, possibly in the ignition research facility in California, might use to work out all that. I w- really flew over my head, but I always had the whiff of cri- crypto that, that that it was that this was always probably down down the line somewhere. You mm. know, it always had that feeling about it that there's going to come a point where there's a precipitous fall, and someone in it is going to be the fall person for it. Now, Sam Bankman-Fried, no doubt, you know, he lo- overlooked, you know, he had, in his purview was ten companies, of which. As we're now learning in front of the house today, you know, so much went wrong in terms of how they presented crypto to investors, you know. Mm. And that was always the bit that I found troubling was that when you had that pylon by celebrities and others saying, invest in this, buy this coin, you know, you got on the tube and it said, Mr. Doug, buy this, you know, all these various coins that you were supposed to invest in. The whole thing had that whiff of a pyramid scheme to it. Mm. And anything like that, it only takes long. It only takes so long before the truth finally comes out. And you know, if you look at what the crux of the of one of the uh, accusations against Sam Bankman-Fried is, is, is that essentially they sold shares in themselves in in FTX that didn't exist. Really, there was nothing to 
share out amongst investors and then hedged risky loans off these internal shares that essentially didn't exist. That is the most insane <laughs> vision of economics I can imagine. And so I, I'm not surprised that it's gone this way. And, you know, I've, I've been amazed, Andrew, since I went to the US, of how many people got full-throatedly into crypto who'd probably never invested in stocks and shares in their lives and believed the dream. Well, I mean, this is a, a follow-up question. Like, Do we at least know people who have got into crypto? Because I do have friends who got into it. They were, I think, quite sensibly got into it quite early and then got out of it again. At least one friend I can think of cleaned up quite handsomely. I definitely know people in the newsroom who were trying to get me on board thinking, you know, this is the next big thing. And I guess they always understood it more than I did in terms of the science, if there is science behind it, but I always perceived it a lot like gambling and such a big risk that I was too scared to get involved. You know, I dabble in the share market because my dad does and he taught me the ins and outs of it and it was something I could kind of understand. But Mm. crypto always seemed like this big wild concept, which was quite frankly too good to be true. And now it almost has proven itself to be like that, I think. And to Lizette's point, I I think that's really interesting that everybody was saying to you, oh, you've got to get into this thing. Because it's true. You you know, Mm. I'm sure your friend who did all right for me was like, oh, got to get into it. Oh, you've missed the boat now, Andrew. You're too late (laughs) now. And that was anything that's got that level where essentially it's sustained by hype. Mm. You've got to be cautious and critical of it. And that plays into the whole feeling of it's a pyramid scheme because that's how they function. Which does uh, prompt the well, it prompts um, a little bit of contemplation of the the figure at the heart of this story, uh, Chris, Sam Bankman-Fried and just wondering what your take on this is and the the time you've spent, not in Silicon Valley, but not very far away, the, the strange enduring potence of the uh, the, the tech bro as somebody 100%. that, that, that yeah. res- respectable, fina- well, respectable, you can imagine the inverted commas there, respectable financial institutions will just shovel money at. Now, I... With all due acknowledgement of the risk of judging by appearances, if some scruffy 30-year-old who can't even be bothered to put on a shirt with a collar turns up on my doorstep and says, please, can I have all your life savings? I totally know what I'm doing. Eh, I don't know. But if a guy with, say, 100,000 followers on Twitter does that, and therefore lots of other tech bros will listen to him, I think Bankman-Fried really, and uh, he's not a tech bro so much anymore, he's a crypto bro, which I think is this new thing that has emerged I, in the last I, few I, years. I think, he's had to, I think he's had to hand his crypto bro card back. <laughs> well, look, all I would say is this, Andrew, you know, if you spend some time these days in Miami, uh, in New York, in, in Los Angeles and elsewhere, you will find many people who affect a very similar look and, and attitude, a, mm. a sort of uh, polished nonchalance, which I would say Sam Bankman-Fried does, a sort of slight kind of awareness of, of his own foible and his own sort of like lack of impressiveness, I suppose. Uh, you will see these people going around art fairs, snapping up, or you did until the, the sort of precipitous <laughs> fall of crypto. But, you know, I remember going to Freeze at the start of the year in Los Angeles and seeing all the, ga- well, hearing from the gallerists, we don't know who these people are, but they're buying stuff. We've never, they've never bought from us before, and now these guys are showing up who've got no real collection. Maybe they have a couple of NFTs, uh, you know, along their hard drive. <laughs> but actual, you know, they're going and buying, you know, relatively historical piece of work for huge amounts of money because they've they've managed to play the crypto game, and that I think is is was so born out of that pandemic era a little bit, really, where you know even the look of Bankman-Fried, the kind of scruffy hoodie and the kind of slightly mm. disheveled appearance, all that is that sort of era of the pandemic where out of nowhere comes these people who've suddenly got a huge amount of money to wheel and deal with. 
Well, let's move along. Uh, at least five million Ukrainians are believed to have fled their country since Russia launched its latest invasion in February. That early exodus was greeted generously by nations and individuals, but there are indications that the hospitable instinct is ebbing, perhaps, especially and ironically, as the costs of accommodating people increase along with energy bills inflated in part by the conflict the Ukrainians have fled. In the UK and Germany in particular, Ukrainian refugees are facing difficulty finding longer-term housing as early sponsorship arrangements come to an end. Um, Lizette, you were in Ukraine quite early uh, in Russia's current assault upon it. Um, Do you get the sense since then that European governments have perhaps not done quite a good enough job in explaining to their constituents that this might be with us for a while? I think everyone felt that, and especially Poland was one Mm. of those countries that in the initial days Almost it felt like the generosity was, oh, this is just a 10-day thing, Mm. two weeks, three weeks, maybe a month. We're a long way down the track. And Mm. early on, people, even in Poland on the border, when those refugees were coming through millions in the first couple of weeks, some of the aid workers and the volunteers there were already expressing to all of the media how worried they were about the lack of government support all across Europe about how they were going to sustain this long term because aid workers, volunteers, they saw that it was going to become a problem, that it wasn't going to be able to be maintained on a volunteer system. People weren't going to be able to house Ukrainians long, long term and take that extra cost, especially, as you say, with the cost of living crisis. So, I feel so incredibly passionately about the fact that the war is not just being fought in Ukraine, that there is a huge responsibility on the whole world, Mm. not just Europe, to do something to contribute to the refugee crisis. I even think countries like New Zealand, who cannot contribute significantly in terms of weapons and and that sort of offering like like the US does, they should be then really prioritising putting money into housing refugees, I think that that is something tangible a country like New Zealand can do to help. I was actually going to ask you about that shortly, but since you've, you've got there already, Lizette, I will ask you about it now. Um, our own two countries uh, are a long way from Ukraine. Australia has certainly been contributing weapons, material and money, but could they be doing more the most practical thing you can do in terms of just saying, like, yeah, send them here. We, we, we can find them somewhere to live. We can find things for them to do. Um, Australia has had, I think, around 4,000 Ukrainians arriving since February, 400 in New Zealand. And between Australia and New Zealand, that's not a whole heck of a lot, especially when in both countries there are established Ukrainian communities who could help new arrivals blend in and so on. Absolutely. I've been very vocal <coughs> about this because I don't think New Zealand's by monthly announcement of weapons contribution does anything. It is so small, it lasts something like three seconds in the term of the war. Mm. So what they can do, as you say, is open their doors and get people into the country. New Zealand has done that to a degree. There's actually my family are dairy farmers. We've got a family of Ukrainians who are now employed on the farm and working and that makes me so happy because (laughs) there is a great life for them to be had there as well as the fact that they contribute to an industry that is desperately crying out for a workforce. So it's a win-win for New Mm. Zealand and that's something so easy we can do to help. So I wish that countries would really consider this as as a significant contribution. It doesn't need to be happening in Ukraine. The, The lives 
that are being affected outside of the country mm. are just as valuable, just as important. Absolutely. Um, and Chris, it does strike me that another thing that I think a lot of Europe has not yet got its head around is that in terms of a refugee exodus from Ukraine, we may not have seen anything yet. It is now fairly clear that Russia intends to cripple or at least severely damage Ukraine's energy infrastructure and deprive people of light and heat. It will be minus nine in Kiev this weekend. Yeah, incredible. That's a sobering thought, Andrew. I mean, you're right. Look, in the initial period after this, I think, you know, when you saw people you know, fleeing across the border and so on, there, there was that initial spark and, and it was so powerful for people to see that image. And I think now as you get into the grind of mm. slow war, if you like, like you say, the, the, almost a siege, if you will, where you have of a, of a country whereby people are slowly ground down by these kind of things and it's going to become more and more difficult. I think also as well, you know, the the... the this, the, 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 you know, the countries that we're talking about here, UK and Germany, I mean, the, you know, with some of the, the sort of idea of my, my, you know, migration fatigue, as it's, as it's been mm. called and so on. You know, the problem with that is that I think what certainly here in the UK is that I think in a lot, maybe in the minds of, of people that they're hearing so much messaging around what's happening in the channel with uh, mm-hmm. small boats coming across and, and a government really unable to deal with that, unable to also... Um, sort of reach out to allies and make that work correctly to handle that situation. So unfortunately, things start to get conflated wrongly mm. in people's minds. And even though actually, you know, a lot of people in the UK government would probably say, well, that's a completely different issue. And in fact, you know, the, the Ukrainians coming over here is exactly what our asylum-seeking policy is for and et cetera, et cetera. I think just that's such a sad consequence of, of, a, of a conflict that's stretching out and just unfortunately getting intermingled with other issues uh, and also you know those two countries that we're talking about here that they 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 are two countries essentially that are in a kind of very f- fractious economic moment and whenever that happens the first thing that does is draw you know pull up the drawbridge if you want well indeed so but is there an opportunity there that isn't being picked up by politicians uh, Lizette because it hasn't struck me at least not yet that for all the grumbling grouching paranoia and xenophobia that goes on here in the United Kingdom and elsewhere about immigrants migrants and refugees there's been very little of that about Ukrainians I think most people understand that yeah they do have their reasons absolutely because I think so many people can put themselves or try and imagine that situation Mm. that these families have been placed in. And I I was in Ukraine two and a half, three weeks ago, and it was getting very, very cold. Mm. And I spoke to one man whose family have been staying in France, his wife and his children, and he said to me that he was considering bringing them back into Ukraine soon because he was worried about the strain that they were putting on the family that they were staying with. Mm. And I looked at this man who had very little to eat, electricity that was dipping in and out every time Putin unleashed on them, increasingly freezing conditions, and his house was one that hadn't been destroyed by bombs, and still it didn't look like a very welcoming, warm place mm. to bring your wife and child back to. And I I just felt in that moment that, wow, we need to make sure that people in Ukraine know and feel that the world still has their backs, that they don't need to bring their families, as much as they'd love to see them, they don't need to bring them back into these incredibly hostile environments because they're being considered a burden. Just finally on this subject, Chris, it's a, a, a journalism-related question, and what we've been talking about is something that I know many of the Ukrainian people we've been speaking to all year have been concerned about, that 
you know, that fatigue will set in. I mean, to put it bluntly, people get bored. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, one, what once seemed a crisis and something new and frantic and exciting just sort of, it, it fades into the background noise. It's this thing that's going on fine. I mean, I'm, I am certainly old enough to remember, and you actually don't need to be that old to remember, when Europe managed to zone out a four-year-long siege of a capital city right in the middle of the continent. That was just a thing that was happening. What are you going to do? Is there anything, and I know journalists have been asking this, asking each other this question for as long as there's been journalism, are we getting any better at sustaining people's interest uh, mm. in what is what does become a long, quite static and complicated story? I think to Lizette's point about the, the two ways of looking at the war, that there's a war in the country and there's a war without, if you like, you know, and outside of it, I think that's super interesting. And I... If I had a comment, and again, you know, I'm I'm looking at, I have to be frank, I'm looking at a lot of this from the perspective of Los Angeles, which mm. which in geographic terms feels very far from Ukraine. About course, as far as you can get. As far, about as far as you can get. Uh, of course, it's still something that you, 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 the papers are still covering and so on. But what I think possibly uh, it sort of falls off a little bit as time goes on is that some of those story, the storytelling around actually the kind of, frankly, the human interest stuff of mm. people, you know, people moving in with each other and connections that are made and stories like that. You don't hear that much of it as time mm. goes on. And I think it is a reflection. Not, I don't think it's just about that time has gone by. I think there's so much happening right now. The world, you know, with with a consequence of this war that if you will those human interest stories of you know people connect connections being made and so on almost seem can almost seem a bit exterior to the realities of lack of gas insane mm. inflation that's been caused by it being able not be potentially not to keep the homes warm and so on and so forth all that stuff that people in the UK and Germany are now sort of sort of thinking about but i do think that they're Telling those stories, you know, we, we should be better, really, I suppose, at telling those stories as they're unfolding now. And I, I, mean, I mean, just, you know, the BBC, I think, does some of this a little bit quite well. But I just think maybe actually to sustain that a little bit more, especially this time of the year, it'd be good to hear a little bit more about some of those like community successes where it has worked, where people have been able to build some kind of life here. Mm. And, and in just these nine, you know, these nine months since the war began. Well, let's move on to something altogether lighter and even optimistic. Uh, The traditional whinge of schoolchildren that they are not being taught anything actually useful appears to have been heard by Kenyan President William Ruto. President Ruto has declared that henceforth coding will be part of the school curriculum from primary school onwards. Um, Lizette, were you taught coding at school in New Zealand or was there too big a queue for the computer? No, I think, I think, (laughs) I think I was at, I was, I was at primary school when we got our very first uh, computer and it was a huge, huge day. One of our students had won it for us in some sort of (laughs) bold and brave competition, Uh, but no, coding was not on the lesson board. Um, I, I did. I mean, I think this is this is good. Obviously, this is this will be Kenyan school children being taught something that is going to be obviously useful to them. Um, but I, I did want to broaden this out into a, a conversation about what we gathered here most resented learning at school because all school children do this you sit there thinking why am i being taught this i'm never going to need to know this this isn't important i'm 14 years old i know everything um chris was there anything you especially resented learning um well i would say this i was probably like a a, a bit of a guinea pig year for a few mad subjects that they don't bother teaching anymore so there was like there, so so there was a there was a, a, a very strange um thing that i taught that, that i learned that was called science for public understanding which right. was like 
basically the esoteric sciences. So there was like there was a bit of genetics in there. There was a bit, of, but all the bits in between, the bits. Were you educated of, on some sort of commune? I know. I just it was just a quite poor, <laughs> quite poor state school in the northwest of England, frankly. But um, but what I, but I think what was important about it was that they they tried to put out these new subjects and they just didn't quite work. And I think that you know there was there was a well-meaning effort to sort of try and rethink what's you know the the the, the science you know if you think about that word science for public concern the idea was that you know your pure sciences your your biology your mm-hmm. physics and so on are becoming too abstract you need to to get these kids into it you need to make it much more tangible and unfortunately it was just boring that, what, what were you most bored and annoyed by at school i was not i mean as we've discussed a science gal uh, I, I have already revealed something of the sort about myself yes. yes so i think that was what i was definitely most uninspired by but i didn't have quite so many quirky options as you <laughs> it was all very standard i mean were there things that you either at the time or since resent not having been taught we were we were discussing this upstairs beforehand and it is still mind-blowing to me that at least i wasn't and nobody upstairs was taught about stuff like you know, mortgages and finance. That's and, what I was going to say. Yeah, Buying and, a house, yeah. like how that works, how it unfolds, how interest rates, all of that, I would have, that is important knowledge. I mean, in, in this day and age, that would need to include a module on how to murder your wealthy grandparents and get away with it. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Added in. <laughs> Were there things you would rather have been taught? either of you other than what you I, were uh, you know the langu- languages that I'm we, still the, angry about languages yeah I mean yeah. I think the ones that we were taught were just so it was so close my you know it was just French and German and that was it that was the extent of your choices at, at the like, risk of turning this into the four Yorkshiremen sketch French and German you were lucky I grew up like you did uh, Lizette on a remote English speaking island and the assumption was that if you just go out into the world and yell at foreigners in English that, that'll be fine I wasn't taught any languages at all not, not at, all. at all barely any I think no I tell a slight lie I think I think in the second year of high school, for reasons surpassing my understanding, we did like a term each of Latin, Indonesian and German, and and that was it. Latin, Latin, Indonesian and German? I quite like Latin and Indonesian, if I'm honest. Wow. No disrespect to any of our German listeners. But yeah, that that, that was all we got. Does New Zealand do that better, at least? We do do it better. We all now learn Māori as part of the curriculum, which is hugely valuable, but I chose to do it for at least a year uh, in, in high school. You learn it at primary school. And then we had French, German, and also, I think, Japanese. See, this this genuinely drives me nuts about Australian education. I, from very early on, I think Australian kids should be learning to speak Japanese and Chinese and Korean and Indonesian and Malay because that's where we are in the world. And I do think, so, I know it's it's probably more difficult because there were more indigenous languages in Australia, but I do think some grounding in that would be a good thing for people to have. I think that Māori is super important mm. in, in New Zealand. There's been a lot of conversation about adding it formally into the curriculum, but I, you know, it's it's a huge, I, I love that I can speak some of it and have some sort of understanding of the native language. I think that's super important and valuable culturally to the country. 
Lizette Raymer and Chris Lord, thank you both for joining us. Finally on today's show, pigeon breeders, or fanciers as they are often known, have been around for centuries, most popularly known for training birds to deliver messages in the First and Second World Wars. But the sport of pigeon racing has grown popular worldwide and offers huge cash prizes for winners. Monocle's Emily Sands spoke to Gavin Fitzgerald, director of the new documentary Million Dollar Pigeons, to find out more about this curious obsession. Pigeon racing has been around for, for centuries. People used to literally rely on pigeons for communication. So it's been around for a long, long time. Uh, they, they saved thousands of, of lives during war even. Um, so the first ever domesticated bird. So humans' relationship with pigeons has been going on for centuries. The racing aspect is what this film is about. This is Gavin Fitzgerald, director of Million Dollar Pigeons. The new film follows pigeon fanciers of the modern age from all different backgrounds as they try to win one of the biggest pigeon races in the world. It's all about finding the perfect pigeon, the best, the most uh, spectacular bred pigeon in the world. These birds are selling for serious high prices now. When I started making this documentary four years ago, I think the most expensive pigeon in the world was about 300 grand, and now it's nearly up to 2 million. The documentary focuses on the 2020 South African million dollar pigeon race. Established in 1996, pigeon fanciers come from different countries, enter with four or even 50 pigeons, hoping that they have a chance of winning the $1.4 million cash prize. The entry fee for one pigeon costing $1,000, but on race day all they can do is hope and pray that their bird gets home first to claim the prize money. The pigeons are up at 6.05, headwind nearly all the way, getting up to 34 degrees. I think it's going to be a very testing day. Out of a sudden, out of the blue sky, a bird comes. That's it. That little bird finds a way and wins against thousands of other birds. That's something, you know, that makes me very excited all the time. I never lost that feeling. I stop it. Up to 400 pigeons entered the 2020 South African Million Dollar Race, sent from all around the world. The birds trained together for over two to three weeks, and then finally the event started. For those sending their prized birds, it's the chance of a lifetime. It's very hard to make your money from pigeons. So a lot of people who, who, who spend, who are willing to spend a lot of money, they have other means. Um, but there are, like, you know, one of the characters we, we cover in America, he, he's, he's one of the few guys who really has built his life and his business around raising pigeons. He, he sells pigeons, he breeds pigeons. That's the dream for, for all these all these guys. They, they want to make a living from it, but it's a very hard thing to do. Super competitive, super cutthroat. So it's very hard for the working class pigeon fans here to compete against these guys. But they do, you know, they're, they're, you hear stories of people who, you know, one pigeon can change their life. Usually, the entries consist of bigger pigeon breeders and trainers who have the money to spend. But one pigeon fancier from Dublin, Ireland, wanted to change that. No pigeon club is sending pigeons to South Africa, nobody. We can be the first pigeon club, all of us coming together. You look at the working class people trying to keep pigeons, but it's very, very hard for them to compete against the rich pigeon men. The thoughts of going to South Africa and having a team over there with all the top lads, like pigeon men from China and all over the world, and just being a part of something like that, you just don't know anything is possible.
with one call to John, I realised, okay, he's this guy's got something that the others don't. And also, he was a young guy in an old man scene, which made him different. But I suppose what drew me to it was was probably the humour. I, I think that uh, there's something inherently funny about a bunch of fully grown men arguing about pigeons. That's their Friday and Saturday night, you know, go to the club, slag each other off about whose pigeons are better than the others. And it, it, it just kind of put a smile on my face. You know, for them, it's everything. It's, it's their passion. It's their vocation. So with that comes a lot of drama. Pigeon racing first became popular in Belgium during the 19th century, but now has spread worldwide. While pigeon racing remains a working class sport in some countries, elsewhere it's attracted to the super rich. Belgium is, is known as the mecca of pigeon racing. That's what's really changing the sport with all the money because a lot of very wealthy people um, race pigeons in China and they're willing to spend big bucks. You know, in casting, we looked for different storylines and, and characters that represent different parts of the industry. You know, we have a vet who specializes in, in looking after elite racing pigeons. There's characters from the States and, and South Africa even. So it's quite diverse. Yeah, I think you get a full picture of, of uh, what's going on in the world. The sport is plagued not just by questions over money, and there has been backlash and campaigning from animal rights protection organisations such as PETA regarding the abusive treatment of the racing pigeons, conditions during race events, and the illegal gambling that comes with the sport. However, this isn't stopping pigeon racing from continuing to grow worldwide. Well, the trajectory is, is definitely on the up, but, you know, in terms of the, the business side of it, but there's a conflict in the pigeon industry. Some people hate all the money, that the new money that's gone into it. They, they think, you know, it's a tradition thing. It's like, if you can't afford horses or, you know, you, you can always afford pigeons, all you need is a, is a, is a shoebox and, and somebody will give you a pigeon for free. Gavin Fitzgerald, director of Million Dollar Pigeons, speaking to Monocle's Emily Sands. That's all for this edition of The Daily. Thanks to our guests today, Chris Smith, Lizette Raymer and Chris Lord. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Emily Sands. Our sound engineer was Steph Chungu. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.